again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your fourth and fifth week host, Stu Levitan. Glad to have you with us as we welcome back to the show Rob Zaleski for another conversation about conversations. The 19 interviews he had with former Madison Police Chief David Cooper, just published as David Cooper Beyond the Badge, Reflections of an Ex-Cop. In a city which has had many interesting and controversial police chiefs, David Cooper stands out. He took command January 2nd, 1973, and ushered in a series of policy and personnel reforms that many residents applauded, but many officers resisted all while suffering a battery of personal trials and tribulations, which would continue for decades. Then in 1993, he did something no one expected. He retired from the police department to become an Episcopal priest. Getting beyond the Cooper headlines and into Cooper's head is the business which occupies Rob Zaleski in Beyond the Badge. It's a business he is well-equipped to pursue, having interviewed thousands of people, including David Cooper, in his 40 years in journalism, including 26 years with the Capital Times. Rob was born and raised in the working-class neighborhood of Bayview on Milwaukee's south side. He studied journalism at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, but dematriculated in his junior year to become assistant sports editor of the Waukesha Freeman. He worked at the Milwaukee Journal and several small dailies in the early 70s before joining United Press International's Madison Bureau in 1976, where he was night editor and covered the Green Bay Packers and UW Sports. He was named sports editor of the Capital Times in 1981, later took a job with the LA Times but couldn't take the traffic, and in 1985 returned to the Capital Times as a columnist, racking up more than a dozen writing awards over the next 23 years. Beyond the Badge is Rob's second Q&A book with an interesting and accomplished public man, following 2019's Ed Garvey Unvarnished, Lessons from a Visionary Progressive. That book was the focus of his first appearance on Madison BookBeat on May 4th, 2020, and kind of had something to do with this book getting written. His first book was a novel in 2012, Searching for Sal, which featured a character clearly based on David Cooper. It is a pleasure to welcome back to Madison Bookbeat my fellow Capital Times alum and friend Rob Zaleski. Much appreciated, Stu. Uh, just glad to be here. Glad to have the opportunity. Well, it's it's an important book. I'm looking for. I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You started working in Madison for UPI in early 1976, which was three years after Cooper started as police chief. Were you already aware of him at that time? What was your first awareness of him? Well, it seemed at the time that Cooper was making headlines, certainly weekly, uh, some uh, promoting him, others uh, criticizing him. Uh, he, he was pretty hard to ignore. Even though uh, I was covering mainly sports, some politics and some environmental stuff, it was hard to ignore David Cooper. and. Quite frankly, uh, like a lot of my colleagues at UPI, I wasn't quite sure what to make of him. Had you been aware of him when you were in Milwaukee or only when you got to Madison? It was only when I got to Madison that I was aware of him. Were you able to make any sense of him at all, or was he just like a mythic figure? That's a pretty accurate description, but um, I did admire him from afar, even, even at that point. 
Um, I thought he was gutsy. Um, I admired the fact that he was willing to confront the rank and file, especially the police union. Um, like a lot of people, I was very much intrigued by him. Who, who is this guy? What makes him tick? Uh, what are his motivations? You had your first extended encounter with him in 1990 for a, a profile, A Day in the Life. Uh, he'd been in the job for 17 years. What was that experience like? Well, I had heard um, from a number of my journalist colleagues that he was a tough interview. So I requested that I spend an entire day with him. And my thinking at the time was that maybe I could wear him down and finally get him to open up. And that's actually what happened. Uh, I think it was probably midway through the day where he seemed to finally get comfortable with me. Although even at that point in his career, Stu, he, he was very, very protective of his private life. And uh, if you tried to nudge him at, at all in that direction, uh, he would cut the interview off. But, you know, I, had, I admired him. I, I saw him interact with, his, with his, uh, his third wife. She wasn't his wife at the time, Sabina. Uh, I believe I had lunch with them on the Capitol Square. They clearly had a chemistry, uh, were crazy about each other. Later on, I watched them do a, a judo session together. Um, but as I note in the book, after the whole day was over and after I left and I was pleased with what I wrote, uh, he was still pretty much an enigma to me. I, I still wasn't sure what made the guy tick. The profile you wrote back then quoted him as saying he, quote, still loves his job. Yet two years later, he announces he's going to quit in a year to become an Episcopal priest. Do you think he believed at the time that he still loved the job or was he because he must have been already harboring some sense that something was going wrong and he needed a change? My impression was that that was pretty much a smokescreen. Um, he was very aware of the political climate at the time, and I think probably was aware that you don't want the police chief suggesting that he no longer likes the job. But clearly he was growing tired of all the bureaucratic stuff. Uh, his relationship with uh, Paul Soglin, the mayor, uh, had kind of um, cooled off. Uh, they got into an argument or, or disagreement about a number of issues. He, he was clearly worn out. And I think he had already started thinking about going in a different direction. In the book, Noble Ray, the, uh, who you know tutored under Cooper and was the first African-American police chief in the city. He recalls sitting with Cooper, sitting in with Cooper in, for meetings in the early 1990s and getting the impression that Cooper really was getting tired of the grind and was thinking of moving on. Yeah, I should note that in addition to the transcribed interviews, you have six uh, short essays that you commissioned from people who worked or covered Cooper. And the Noble Ray uh, commentary is very informative and instructive in, into some of the police department issues. And I got to say, George Hesselberg's column from 1993 is incredibly perceptive and very well written. It's, it's, it's a real benefit to have those essays at the end of the book. Oh, thank you. I, and I, I agree with you. George did a remarkable job in the commentary that he wrote when Cooper stepped down and then you know, gave kind of an updated impression. 
in which he still has great admiration for Cooper. I felt that those essays added quite a bit to the book, just as I had people do essays on Ed Garvey mm -hmm. and uh, the feedback I got on those essays was quite positive. That's why I did the same thing here. Just as long as you don't have to split the royalties with them. <laughs> I can assure you that won't happen. But as you know, uh, people have this impression that authors at the regional level make a fair amount of money. And uh, you really want to, if you break even, you're happy. If you make a little bit more, I think with the Garvey book, I had enough money left over where my wife, Cindy, and I, we were able to take a nice vacation to Zihuatanejo, Mexico. And I was pleased with that. You know, in this instance, uh, I've been told by some journalists that this book doesn't have much readership value beyond Dane County. I believe otherwise, but, um, but I guess we'll find out. I don't expect to get rich by any means with this book, but I do think Cooper has some very important things to say about the future of policing and the state of the country in general. I don't know if you saw it, but Marco Rubio was criticizing the debt relief plan because he, and he actually said, I had $100,000 in debt and, and then I wrote a book and I paid the debt off. It's like, dude, you're a U.S. senator. You're running for president. Like, this is not a scalable solution for the rest of the country, Marco. As you mentioned, he was not, Cooper was not a good interview back in the day. Why did you think he would agree to a project like this? Well, first of all, at this point in his life, he recently turned 84. I do think upon reflection that he's really proud of what he accomplished. Uh, where I do give him credit, Stu, is that he acknowledges that he made a lot of mistakes, that he's a very flawed individual. And I think you know that people who are highly successful, from my experience, don't want to talk about the mistakes they made or how flawed they are. Cooper, uh, Cooper pretty much stands alone that way. As I note, as I noted to Doug Moe when he, when he interviewed me last week for a piece in Madison Magazine, there are very few successful, successful in quote marks, people who I've interviewed over the years who are willing to look back and say, "Wow, I, you know, I screwed up here or whatever." You know, the best example was Al McGuire. I don't know if you remember him when he was the Marquette basketball sure. coach in the 70s. He was a maverick. But uh, as I was telling people the other day, when I was working part-time at the Milwaukee Journal as a sports writer, just getting started, Al McGuire was coach of the Marquette basketball team. And he would call the Milwaukee Journal every week or so and complain that they were treating him like a saint. And he's saying, my God, you know, can you criticize me a little bit? I'm not perfect. That was, uh, I, I remember I was slack-jawed. So were most people at the Milwaukee Journal that a, that a coach of all people would call and say, you're being too easy on me. Uh, so Cooper, during our interviews, would acknowledge mistakes and uh, accepted them and accepted the fact that like everyone else, he's a flawed individual, but I think overall is very, very, um, proud at this point of what he accomplished. Is Al McGuire the missing third part of the trilogy that whom you wish you could have done a similar book with? He is. He is. I, I have a number of Al McGuire stories. Um, he just was, he was a very different 
guy. Al McGuire, very quickly, I was working part-time at the Milwaukee Journal. As I said, as a sports writer, I was attending school at UW-Milwaukee. And one day, the beat reporter for the Milwaukee Journal, Mike Cupper, got sick. And my mentor, Bill Dwyer, who went on to become sports editor of the Los Angeles Times, told me to go out and cover Marquette's practice. They were national champions who were about to become national champions at the time. I was scared stiff. My knees were knocking. I said to Bill Dwyer, me, you want me to interview Al McGuire? After the practice was over, McGuire took me into his office, kicked his feet up on the desk, uh, took off his shoes. He always, that was his practice. He had, uh, he was known for having uh, pictures, portraits of uh, sad clowns. They were all over the walls of the office. <laughs> and he saw how nervous I was. And I asked him one question about, you know, what he thought the, what the Warriors were capable of this season. And he spoke nonstop for about 45 minutes and gave me everything I wanted, told me who their, what he thought their uh, chances were in the NCAA tournament, who are the players who are doing well, who are the ones that were coming up short. And he became my hero at that point. Uh, 45 minutes, I came back to the office. Bill Dwyer said, Zaleski, do you have a story? And I said, oh my God, do I have a story? And I'll never forget that. Uh, he was so he was so in tune realizing that I was way over my head in that interview. And he, he gave me one of the great sports interviews I ever had. And, and speaking of mentors, uh, we should note the book is dedicated to Dave Zwiefel, who also gave me my career in Madison by hiring me in 1975 to be the Cap Times Washington correspondent. So we are both indebted to Dave Zwiefel for having confidence in a couple of young men to become journalists. Yeah, you know, Zwiefel um, not only uh, gave me the shot at being sports editor of the Capital Times in 1981, um, when I had been working for UPI, uh, Joe Hart, who was a member of the staff at that time, actually interviewed me first, and I think went back to Zwiefel and said, yeah, Zaleski might be okay. Then after I left the paper, after three years as being sports editor, and went out to the LA Times, and uh, hated it out in LA. Zwiefel heard that I was unhappy, contacted me and said that he had always been looking for a news columnist. And would I be willing to come back to Madison at my old salary, he would hire me. Uh, the Cap Times had a hiring freeze at the time, but Fred Miller, the publisher was a, uh, a friend of mine. And so they hired me and Zwiefel gave me that chance. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I, uh, you know, I really didn't have a place to go. I was not happy at the LA Times and Zwiefel took a chance on me. That was the second time. And then he stuck with me for 23 years when I was a columnist. I'm sure he gritted his teeth many times over some of the things I wrote, but um, it, was a, it was pure joy working for Dave Zwiefel. And, and you know what? There probably are a hundred other people who who share that feeling about him. Yeah, as you do, prince, right? He, he's he's a prince of a man, prince of a man. Yeah. If Cooper had retired from being police chief to become a security consultant or a gentleman farmer or or just something <laughs> other than an Episcopal priest, would you have been as interested in doing this book? Uh, no, no, I. I remembered from our first interview in 1990 
that he did not come across as uh, very religious. Uh, it was a, just a small part of the interview, but uh, as I note in the book, nobody had any idea that he was headed in that direction. Even Sabina, his third wife, there were no hints. Uh, the story about the epiphany is fascinating, I think, this epiphany that he had. It's also quite humorous, I think. Uh, I think some of the more spirited discussions we had uh, were along the lines of religion, since I'm an agnostic, and of course he's a priest. So uh, we had some really spirited fun back and forth uh, about religion. We're talking with Rob Zaleski. His book is David Cooper, Beyond the Badge, Reflections of an Ex-Cop. 19 interview sessions over the course of a year, all but four in person, those four over Zoom because of COVID. What were those sessions like? Uh, they were, you know, it, it started out, Cooper was cautious, I think, in maybe the first couple of interviews, although in the first chapter, we start right off with the impact of Donald Trump. I just felt that it's something we had to talk about since he was a religious person and there were so many religious people, evangelicals, who were supportive of Trump. To me, it's a total disconnect, does not make sense. I don't know how you could preach the words of Jesus Christ and then support this despicable character named Donald Trump. Um, but once Cooper warmed up, uh, he, would, he would approach every interview, he would be waiting for me at the door of his country home with coffee in his hand, and we would sit down right away and uh, it, there was never a dull moment. Stu, there were two things. People have asked me, what do you, what do you take away uh, from those interviews? What were the most important things you learned? And there were two of them. The one is I have never encountered a person in my life who is more upbeat every single day than David Cooper. He was, he never had a down moment. He, he was frustrated and angry about certain things, but his outlook on life, his attitude, uh, he was, you know, as I mentioned uh, the other day at the, my book launch, Sabina, his third wife came down with, with uh, bone cancer and kidney failure in 2008. She begged him to keep her out of a nursing home or a hospital. He vowed to take care of her. She was only expected to live six months to a year at that point, but he took care of her for almost 13 years. And honest to God, he would do dialysis when I was out there doing the interviews. He would pause to go down and help her with her dialysis. And she was so grateful to him. And uh, what he did, quite frankly, is uh, heroic in my mind. Um, but that's David Cooper. He was never down. He was always. Um, looking at the right side of things. Uh, there's, I've never met anyone like that. The other thing that I admired about him was that he looked at every day as a gift. He really did. I know that's a cliche, but he approached every day as a gift. And he spent every day, whether it was working with it, dealing with his family or friends who had problems, he spent every day trying to bring people together respect other points of views and make the world a better place in his little small way. And uh, I was in awe of that. At the end, I was absolutely in awe 
of um, his attitude. I wish I, I wish I could say I could I emulate that myself. I've tried, but wow, it, it really was. Uh, it, it's something to be, interact with him on a regular basis and see that. Now, for all his positive attitude, we should note that when Sabina died, it did devastate him and put him in a world of serious hurt. Oh, unbelievable. Um, I checked in with them a couple times. She died on Christmas Eve, 2020. And um, he was he was grieving nonstop. Cindy and I actually uh, in, the, in the early January drove out to his country home. I was afraid he wasn't going to make it. I don't think I was the only one. We took some Christmas cookies out there and we gave him a, a poster of the of the words from the Beatles song in my life. Um, and, and he was grateful for that, but he had trouble holding it together. Even when we were out there, we were only out there for 45 minutes or so. He had his dog Mocha next to him, but he was, he was struggling. He was, he talks about the importance of faith in his life and how that got him through that period and so many tragedies that he had in his life. And uh, I accept that. I mean, I, I believe that. Uh, the turnaround, uh, which is the focus of the epilogue, as you know, is, is also quite startling. But there is no question that David Cooper was in a very bad way after Sabina passed away. But of all these friends and lovers, there was no one that compares to you. In right, my life, exactly. I've loved you more. Yeah, that's wonderful. Right. That's John's best. That's yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, yeah. Good call on that one, man. Good call. I noted that this is essentially the second in a series after the Ed Garvey book. What is it about the format of a transcribed Q&A that you find particularly attractive to work in? Well, the truth of the matter is, um, Early in my career, I, I mentioned this at the book launch, I was a terrible interviewer, you know, and looking back at, say, my first 10 years as a journalist. And as a result, I began looking back at some of my older articles and realized they really lacked substance. And it was because I was a poor interviewer. You know, I thought I was some hotshot young guy who could spin a phrase and uh, get by with that. And it dawned on me that you have to be a good interviewer to get a good story. I think David Marinus would be the first to agree with that. So back at that time, uh, as I'm sure you recall, people actually, there were people who bought Playboy magazine just to read the interviews. And they had some very explosive and uh, captivating, enthralling interviews. And I did read the interviews and was fascinated by how they uh, revealed a person's true identity. And then 60 Minutes, of course, I began to study those interviews. I had two, um, two journalistic heroes growing up, or when I was, say, in my teen years and early 20s. One was Theodore White, the historian, uh, who wrote the Making of the President books. I was uh, really fascinated that I think, as you know, many people in our business are either great writers and mediocre interviewers or great interviewers and mediocre writers. That's my experience. Theodore White was the first writer I came across who was a brilliant interviewer and a brilliant writer. 
And that had an effect on me. Uh, same thing with Sports Illustrated's Frank DeFord, uh, brilliant writer and a, a brilliant interviewer. And so I really studied interviewing. And it wasn't until really later in my career that I got any good. I'm hardly great by any means. I'm not a great writer. I'm not a great interviewer. But I came to be okay with both. And so um, I love the interview format, the Q&A. The other thing was, you know, with Garvey and with Cooper, Garvey was, uh, had already been diagnosed with Parkinson's. So we had no idea how his health would hold up during the interviews. So we both agreed that the best way to handle the story and to get the book out would be the Q&A format, which would be easier to put into print. Same thing with Cooper. Cooper recently turned 84. Um, my gosh, he would joke about, I hope we finish these interviews before I die. So that seemed like the easiest format. And the other thing I will add is that really, there are only a few individuals who can pull that off, uh, being such a great interview that that'll carry the whole, the, the whole book. Um, there really aren't a whole lot of people that I know who I could do that with. Uh, Garvey and Cooper turned out to be outstanding interview subjects. So I think the format worked. I've been told that it works. And, uh, it, it, you know, having said that, I went into the Cooper book with the same expectations that I had with the Garvey book, zero expectations. I had no idea whether there would be much readership value outside of Dane County. As to those Playboy interviews, it was a Playboy interview in which candidate Jimmy Carter talked about having lust in his heart. So, yeah, those, those have made and there's a legendary Nat Hentoff, Bob Dylan fake interview in which they just made up the, the whole thing. But, yeah, those those Playboy interviews, big newsmakers did those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I made it clear with both Ed Garvey and with uh, with David Cooper that once we started the interviews, what they said during the interviews, that was etched in stone. There was no changing it. They both got to see, well, Garvey's family got to see he died before the book came out. But they, uh, I sent the manuscript along to David and I told him, I want you to go through this closely, uh, but just understand if you find errors of fact, yes, let's change them. But nothing that you said in the interview interview is going to change that that's solid well you said you want to get to more substance let's talk some substance of, of the cooper experience starting with madison i mentioned that he changed the personnel of the madison police department how significantly did he change the numbers for women and persons of color well when he started there was one black officer and there were seven female officers, all in the juvenile section. They weren't allowed to carry weapons. Um, when he left, 10% of the department were, was made up of people of color, and about 25% were women. Uh, I believe that number went up to close to 35% under Noble Ray, but um, it was a it was a dramatic change, and and uh, <laughs> it was flat bought all the way by the rank and file. And as he mentions, I asked him at the end of the interviews, there are some progressives in town who believe you could have accomplished even more. And Cooper kind of leaned back and shook his head and he said, 
how big of a flash piece of flesh do they want out of David Cooper? Do you realize what I was up against? A union that fought me every step of the way, uh, rank and file officers, conservatives in the community. Uh, he said one, one conservative officer came up to him at one point near the end and said, how many people of color do we need in the department? So he fought that constantly, but he had this firm belief. He had this goal that he was going to transform the complexion of the department. And uh, he's proud of that. And, and it's, it is an amazing story. I, I'm really in awe of what David Cooper accomplished. And I have even more admiration for him after these interviews than I did when I started. He even had officers file charges against him. <laughs> he did. Uh, that was, yeah, he, he can look back on that and laugh now. You know, even the charges, for instance, that he was caught swimming naked in a neighbor's pool on a hot summer night while he was, quote, loaded. Um, I asked him, how do you plead to that? And he said, uh, well, I didn't know it was against the law to, to go skinny dipping in a neighbor's pool. And he explained that uh, the, everyone who was at the, all the men who were there, their wives were in the, in the living room having a discussion. They had no problem with it. They were just having a good time. But uh, a lot of the officers who despised Cooper were, were looking for anything and everything to put him in a negative light. Yeah, we had the A team and the B team and, and the, right. the holdovers from the Emory administration. And my goodness, if the police and fire commission had hired Herman Thomas, the entire story of Madison in the 70s would have been a much unhappier existence. I agree. But you, you, you did get Cooper to um, admit to smoking a little pot. <laughs> I did. And uh, he kind of hedged around on that one. Also, you know, when I asked him about his, you know, he first said, but you know, that's all I, that's the only thing I ever smoked. And I said, well, wait a minute. There are, there are photos of you chomping on cigars at meetings. And he kind of chuckled and, and, and said, of course, the old Jimmy Carter, I mean, the Bill Clinton line that he never inhaled. But uh, yeah, uh, Cooper was by no means a saint and he admits it. And, um, you know, he talks about at the one meeting, one of the first meetings where he, he was told by Herman Thomas, by the way, uh, our uh, rules state that you're going to have to shave your, your facial hair. And Cooper's response was typical Cooper. Well, then I guess we're going to have to change the rules. <laughs> and it's astonishing how much pressure he was going through at, at work while he's undergoing tremendous pressure in his personal life. He's got a failing marriage, a daughter involved in drugs and alcohol, running away. D did people on the outside have any clue what was going on in his personal life while all this drama is playing out at work? I don't believe so. Uh, he was very guarded about that. And quite frankly, I don't want to give away too much uh, here in this interview for people who are going to read the book because I I do think well Doug Mo was telling me he was downright shocked about some of the revelations in the book and I would like to keep those uh, you know quiet right now and not talk about them but you know there was there was the letter that Richard Daly the head of the police union sent to both papers in the mid 1970s after Cooper's oldest daughter was arrested 
uh, downtown for, uh, I believe, alcohol, uh, alcohol disturbance at the time, uh, which Cooper said was the low point of his time as, as a police chief to have something like that appear in the paper and daily saying, my God, if this guy can't take care of his family, how is he going to take care of a department with 300 employees? But um, yeah, it, the grind, the grind is unbelievable. And so his response by competing in so many different athletic endeavors is amazing to me. I mean, this guy wasn't just, he wasn't just a, a, someone who went out on the street and, and exercised. He was proficient in almost everything he tried. I mean, cross country skiing, marathon running, you're a, you're a runner. Uh, his time of three hours and 18 minutes in the, in the uh, Boston Marathon, uh, a champion wrestler. Uh, he got a football scholarship offer to the University of Minnesota, black belts in three, three of the martial arts. It's amazing. And another aspect that you would think would have endeared him to the officers uh, here was that he was a former Marine and, and, and almost made it a career. And what I find, I went back and, and reread all the clippings from when he was appointed and neither paper, they, both papers had extensive coverage, you know, this great liberal forward thinking progressive police chief and, and, and here's his background. Neither paper mentioned that he had been in the Marines. Really? Wow. That's and yet it was one of the formative things of his life. Oh, it's the, he calls it the thing, the game changer for him. Taught him discipline, taught him respect. Uh, yeah, he points to the Marines as the first step in the development of who David Cooper became. Now, I am still astonished, to be honest with you, that someone could come from that kind of childhood with no real mentors outside of a wrestling and football coach in his high school and a guy named Gary Olson, who he interacted with briefly. And then his grandmother, who was real into culture and took him to art museums and stuff like that. But he had no relationship with his parents. They never even encouraged him to go to college. Uh, he was not motivated at all. There's a, there's a part in the book where I mentioned that Sabina, who was president of her high school class, mentioned to him at one point, my God, David, did you hold any leadership positions at all when you were younger? And he talked, he chuckled and said, no, in fact, I'm still, I'm still ticked off that I was passed over for as a crossing guard in seventh grade. <laughs> he, he, there was nothing to suggest in his youth that David Cooper was gonna become the person he eventually became. What about policies? How, we, we mentioned you mentioned the facial hair policy change. Uh, how, on more important policies, how significantly did he change MPD department policies? Uh, there were so many of them, you know, uh, not to use. Uh, I think the most significant one was not to pursue cars uh, that had been involved in burglaries or whatever. Um, you know, uh, protests would be handled differently. Uh, people would be allowed to protest. The police would no longer be able to block off the protests and put up barricades. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the story that, that really uh, I found 
was really a heartfelt story and, and one that I think really gives you an idea of who David Cooper was, was there's a poem at the end of the book that he closes with. I mean, Cooper's a published poet, uh, among other things. And he talks about this burglary that occurred and he almost shot a kid. And uh, I guess I'll leave it at that, but the poem is very moving. And I think really, uh, I wanted to close the book on that note because I think it really does capture uh, who, who David Cooper was. And uh, he was still evolving at that point. But um, David Cooper, if you were to have him here right now, would tell you that he's still evolving. He, every day he wakes up, he goes on to his policing blog, and he has ideas about how to make the community better, the country better. Um, I was so excited at the end. I would say the last four or five interviews, honestly, Stu, I, I couldn't wait to get over there and talk to him about these various subjects. And we would really get engaged in some intense conversations. And uh, he's someone you just want to spend time with. That poem is called Gift, and it's, it is very moving. Editing Cooper's book on the militarization of police is what first connected you to about a decade ago, is that still the topic that gets him the most emotional and animated? Oh, without question. Yeah, he is, he is very uh, dismayed by how uh, militaristic our police have become. And the fact that most people still don't recognize it, they don't understand it. Um, he, people in the poor communities understand it because you know, that's where the police do the most damage, quite frankly. I mean, they do a lot of good as well, but, uh, you know, tanks and the, the guns they're using now and the uh, assault rifles and, you know, the armor. Cooper's very much opposed to just the police showing up in this like SWAT gear for uh, every kind of uh, uh, violent confrontation there is in the community. He just thinks, you know, he's appalled by by police showing up in armor in a school situation. He just thinks we've gone way too far to the right. Uh, and, and that he does believe in large part, it was an overreaction to 9-11. That, you know, we, we became so paranoid. He would have been upset at the Orton Park Festival yesterday. There were mass and police officers at a neighborhood festival wearing outsized body armor. Wow. I usually go to the Orton Festival. I'm shocked to hear that. That I, I'm sure he would consider that a uh, significant step backward. He's totally opposed to that. Um, yeah. I, I wonder how he would have handled the riots here in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder? That's a good question. I know he did speak with um, some fellow police officers or former police officers during that period. Uh, he was, one of our interviews takes place about a week after George Floyd was murdered. And that clearly was um, the most angry I did see him. He was just beside himself he had watched that video of Derek Chauvin probably two dozen times. And every time he watched it, he said his blood pressure went up higher and higher. Uh, he was, of course, appalled that the other officers didn't intervene. Uh, 
to stop that. Um, yeah, he's he's still very disturbed by what's occurring in policing, and he does offer some suggestions in the book. I won't get into those about some possible solutions or partial solutions, but I one of the things I feel good about is I think if people read this book, he still offers a perspective on policing that I think is largely missing in the debates today. It's possible that some of his positions may be out of step with Madison, the broader Madison community. He's in favor of police officers in schools, which the school board and the common council were decidedly against. Uh, he wouldn't mind police unions going away. Uh, <laughs> He's not a big fan of, he would not have his officers wear body cameras. I, I wonder how, how he would operate in today's Madison milieu. It's a great question. Uh, a lot of people have posed it. Um, I'm not sure Cooper himself knows. He would, be, uh, he would be rattling the cages. That's just who he is. You know, he talks in the book about how he thinks Soglin and members of the city council and the police union uh, all viewed him as a thorn in the side during those years because he was uh, he was always raising questions, always challenging. That's David, though, and, and you know he's he's a deep thinker. Uh, there are a few people that I've met who actually spend, gosh, an hour to a day thinking about the most significant problems in the country and trying to come up with a reasonable solution. He really does give this stuff a lot of thought. Most of us, I think, are so caught up in our day-to-day -day lives that you know we see a headline and we might think about it for 10 minutes or so and then go on to something else, not David Cooper. We're talking with Rob Zaleski. The book is David Cooper, Beyond the Badge, Reflections of an Ex-Cop. For me, of course, the meat of the book is the section focusing on his time as police chief. And it's astonishing that he didn't realize how angry Mayor Bill Dyke was at his being chosen by the Police and Fire Commission, which Dyke had appointed. Dyke was so upset he didn't even come to the swearing in of the new police chief. That's just astonishing to me. I mean, the, the notion of the mayor boycotting the police chief's swearing in is, is staggering. It is. I agree. And, you know, I think Cooper would be the first to admit that he was extremely naive when he came here. Uh, he was so idealistic and he had some firm ideas on what needed to happen, but did not comprehend at all what it was going to take. I mean, he he claims in the book that he wasn't even aware that Dyke was opposed to him being hired. That's how naive he was. He uh, but he loves a challenge. And, um, you know, I asked him at the end if, uh, if being a priest, I mean, if being the police officer uh, was something he should have done. And he says yes. And he also believes that become, turning to the ministry and becoming a priest was the right decision. He's, he's very comfortable with the decisions he made in his life at this point. Which do you think he thinks he was more successful at? Gosh, that's a, that's a real good question. I do think that in a small way, he has this real small congregation, St. Peter's. Uh, he definitely, uh, the people love him there. 
and he's very uh, he's very proud of that as well. If you get a chance, anyone who's listening, uh, I would encourage you to drive up to North Lake in you know ultra conservative Waukesha County and to uh, sit in on one of his sermons. There's something else. He gets he gets the whole congregation involved in the sermons, and uh, they really are uh, they're enlightening and they're stimulating and they all end on an inspiring note so he really is in his he's really in his element right now as a priest uh i i would agree that that was that was a logical maybe not so logical but it was the right decision for him and uh, it it enabled him to continue to grow at 84 cooper is still growing and i really admire that and the concluding essay in the book is, is from one of the parishioners who's involved in his hiring, and they, they do apparently love him there. Cooper took command four months before Paul Soglin was elected mayor and was still chief when Soglin had his second administration starting in 1989. How did Cooper see their relationship over time? Well, in the beginning, he points out they were friends. Uh, they actually socialized together and they were cohorts. Um, they needed each other. As Cooper pointed out, Sagan was arrested, you know, during uh, anti-war protests, as I believe it was. And Cooper was under fire from the beginning. Uh, the relationship soured over, uh, seems to me, hiring practices. I, I can't quite remember. I think it was Cooper wanted more officers and Sagan wasn't up for that. I'd have to go back and double check that, but their, their relationship did sour at the end, even though Cooper still has great respect for Sagan. I think Paul also didn't buy into the whole Deming total quality well, thing that Joe Sensenbrenner had instituted, although right. now Sagan looks back on that and thinks that's one of the best things Sensenbrenner did in terms of the, right? the yeah. quality, the Deming method. So maybe, right. maybe he was reluctant at the time for whatever reason, and now looks back on it and thinks it was a good idea. Yeah, they were at odds over that. That was another factor. Newspaper reporters know that the best part of our job is we get to look behind the curtain and we get to ask people questions. The worst part is asking questions that are painful to answer. How stressful were the conversations that dealt with some of the most devastating aspects to Cooper's life? Uh, those were those were very, very tough conversations. I had cautioned him at the very beginning that that I wanted to talk about all aspects of his life. And of course, his family was really hit hard by the drug drug epidemic. Uh, he winced, he cringed, but he he was forthright. He talked about it willingly. Um, but there clearly was pain. Um, he can't explain it. He, uh, it's probably a big reason he turned to religion and faith because I think there's a part of him that will acknowledge that life is very unfair with the series of tragedies that he endured. But um, again, he accepts it and he he doesn't let it weigh him down. I guess that's one of the things that's amazing to me, most amazing, is that 
for all the tragedies that he endured, for a lot of people, you get one major tragedy and it uh, can destroy your life. Uh, in my own family, uh, I had a little brother who died in a freak accident the day after his second birthday. Um, I was seven years old at the time. Uh, it was back in the 1950s and it was such a freak and weird accident that it was on the front page of the Milwaukee Journal. And uh, a dark cloud hung over our family for five years at least. Um, and it caused, I would say, I, I think I and my other family members are still scarred by that experience um, all these years later. Cooper had so many tragedies that would have really uh, leveled some most other people, I think. And yet he got he was knocked down and he got back up and lived this uh, very um, you know significant productive life. The fact that his two failed marriages weren't even in barely in the top five of his trials and tribulations because of other even more serious and devastating things. Did he know this about you? What is that? About your your brother? Uh, I, I believe we discussed it uh, briefly during. Yeah, I think we did discuss it. As I mentioned to him, you know, that nobody gets through life unscathed. I mean, that's just the way it works. You know that. I know that. Um, and he's always, you know, very compassionate, always very caring. Uh, one of the most compassionate people I've ever known. And so, yeah, that, that was part of our discussion. Uh, I felt I needed to, I felt I needed to mention that just because, um, my gosh, you know, there were about three or four interviews. It seemed like three or four in a row where, where we were discussing personal tragedies that he had endured. And I just thought to offer that might, might comfort him a little bit. His announcement in 1992 that he was going to retire and enter the priesthood was, to put it mildly, pretty big news here in Madison. How did he perceive Madison overall reacted to that decision? Well, it's funny. Uh, I think he's a little bit defensive uh, about the reaction. He talks about people rolling their eyes. Uh, especially when he mentioned that he, he had he was called uh, in the epiphany and everything. Uh, he thinks Madison is, um, you know, it's a secular city that uh, frowns upon a lot of this stuff dealing with organized religion. And I think he felt, I think he still feels unfairly that he was unfairly judged, that, um, that people kind of looked at it some people, a segment of our of our community, looked at it as kind of a wacko decision. But you know, I don't think I told him I don't think the reaction was as harsh as he seems to remember it. You never were a gotcha kind of reporter, but there is one conversation in which you read Cooper's words from your 1990 profile back to him that absolutely floors him about his attitude towards marijuana. Do, do, you, do you remember if there was much reaction to that story at the time about how odd it was to hear David take such a hardline position against decriminalization and legalization? You know, when I did the interview in 1990, 
that was pretty much the mainstream view. As I pointed out to him, you know, after he felt so bad, after he was so floored by me bringing it up in 2020, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, George, I mean, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, they all, uh, uh, Joe Biden. If you remember, the thinking back at that time was, let's take a harder look at incarceration and things like that, longer terms. But I will say, um, I had entered that interview in 2020. Uh, it was not intended that interview as a gotcha moment, but I was surprised that he did not remember that he had that harder stance. And I had the article in front of me. And after he frowned and told me, no, I, I don't think I ever said those things. So then I read to him what I had written and uh, his floor, his, his jaw almost hit the ground. He was flabbergasted. He apologized. It took him honestly five minutes to recover from that. And I told him, well, David, I do tape my interviews. So, you know, that's, that's from a taped interview. And he said, no, 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 I, I believe I said it. And I'm just floored that I said it now. And then he talked about how, you know what? We all have, uh, our, our memories do fade as we get older and we all tend to forget things. We all tend to look at history, our own histories with rose colored glasses and don't remember some of the things we said now that we regret. But it was a, um, as a journalist, of course, uh, I was, um, over, not overjoyed, but I was happy to catch him admitting that and being floored by it. And it was, uh, we talked about it later on too. So yeah, that, that was a gotcha moment. I try not to do that stuff, but it, it definitely happened and was, yeah. I've been successful in forgetting most of the embarrassing things I did on the county board, but unfortunately there, there were <laughs> stories right at the time. <laughs> The human mind has the great ability to paper over stuff that it does not want uh, to remember. I mean, I people bring up columns that I wrote back in the 1990s or whatever. You know, every columnist has their share of clunkers. My God, I had my share. And when they mention some of these columns, I just, wow, it, I can't believe it. But, you know, it's there. It's, it, it's in print. I, I just hope that most people forgot those columns. So Cooper has a successful career as a police chief, an officer and police chief. He would go on to become a beloved member of the priesthood. At one point, he thinks he'll try his hand at higher education as an instructor at the UW Platteville. It did not go well. Uh, that's an understatement. Uh, he, if there's one thing he's still bitter about, at this point in its life, in his life, it's how that the course he was teaching in criminal justice, how these uh, young, well, they were juniors and seniors, several of them, a number of them were about to already go onto the street to, to become police officers. And they pretty much from the petition that they filed and wanted him removed as, as uh, the instructor, uh, they clearly rejected many of the things he talked about. Uh, his progressive view on policing. And uh, my own thought was upon reading the petition, petition was this was really audacious on their part. Wow, these kids who are, what, in their early 20s maybe, suggesting that David Cooper is not fit to teach a class on policing? Wow. Um, 
that blew my mind. I saw it. And uh, 17 of the 29 students signed the petition saying that they wanted him removed as, uh, as the instructor. He wanted to be able to defend his views. He wanted to get the students together and have a spirited debate about it, but he was not allowed to do that. So finally, at Sabina's suggestion, who said, my God, at this point in your life, do you need any more grief? Uh, just accept it and move on. And he did. Uh, spent a lot of time walking the trails on his uh, country property, trying to figure out why he failed with those students. And it is, he's moved on, but it's definitely one of the biggest disappointments of his life. Well, at least it's giving him a chance to work on his ability to forgive. It is, it definitely is. <laughs> that, that's a good point, yes. The coda to Cooper's life, which is in the epilogue, is, is pretty amazing. Did you get the sense that he feels that this good fortune is karma paying him back for the two bad marriages that he endured? Well, you know, more than one person has suggested that this Buddhist friend of theirs, uh, of his and Sabina, who came to visit from Japan, told him that this is karma. You, uh, he, the way he explained it was, you know, Sabina was sick for 12 years and you took care of her and were a loving and caring husband to the very end. This is karma. You deserve this. Um, I, I'm not sure how Cooper explains it, other than I will tell you that I've seen him with Christine and it's unbelievable. Uh, the connection they made, the respect they have for each other. Um, Cooper is as happy now as I've ever seen him. Uh, he looks at this as a new lease on life and she seems thrilled to be around David Cooper. David Cooper, you can't help but spend time with David Cooper and not be inspired. I know that sounds like a cliche too, but to be around this guy day in and day out, he just, he comes at life from a different angle and he looks at the good things in life and he's very active, very active guy. He does not like to just sit still and, uh, you know, spend his retirement years in a rocking chair, you know, staring out at the hummingbirds or whatever. That's not David Cooper. So, uh, Anyone who reads the epilogue, I think, is probably going to be shocked. I was shocked after it occurred. I mean, when it occurred and then meeting with him in Mount Horeb uh, after he was married um, and seeing how happy he was, it's really a, it's an unbelievable story. But as Doug Moe put it, maybe not so surprising when you look at the whole, the whole life of David Cooper. Maybe, maybe it's fitting. Not only a new best friend and wife, but she's also a nurse. That's right. I mean, right. <laughs> every old man's dream. Yeah, exactly. He said the way he looks at it with Sabina and with Christine is that he won the lottery twice. You mentioned how charismatic and inspirational David was. So far, you've been doing these events by yourself. Will we be seeing joint events in which David appears, maybe as we get closer towards that uh, holiday gift-giving season? Well, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, I talked about this at length with the publisher, Kristen uh, Mitchell of Little Creek Press, wonderful, wonderful person. Um, and she pointed out, that um, first, it's your first few book signings 
you need to be alone. You don't want, because the, the, the concern is that people would be peppering David Cooper with questions that are answered in the book. And um, the, the book would become secondary to the discussion. I think uh, that makes a lot of sense. So the first few book signings will be myself and uh, answering questions about the book and how I approached it. But yes, as Christmas approaches and uh, we've hopefully saturated the market in Dane County, I don't know outside of Dane County, uh, we will bring Cooper on and it'll be the two of us. And hopefully we'll be holding some podcasts and some discussions about what our uh, what our interactions were like over that very difficult pandemic year of 2020. Well, I hope, got to great have, I hope to have the, the both of you back. Uh, is there anything about Cooper you don't admire? Hmm. Let me think for a second that I don't admire. You know, um, I honestly can't think of anything. As the conversations went on, I was pleasantly surprised to find out that we thought alike on almost every subject. But we actually became like soulmates. Uh, it was hard to hold his feet to the fire almost to the end um, to be an objective journalist because uh, the friend, the, 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 the discussions at the end really became more like two buddies sitting over a beer at a bar or whatever. And now that, now that it's over and now that David accepts what's written in the book, some of it's, I'm guessing, tough for him to accept reading that stuff that was said during the interviews. I hope to, uh, I do hope to have a relationship with, with David Cooper. I, I really find that I learned from the guy and I find that, uh, he always gets me thinking whenever I talk to him, I leave the conversations thinking, wow, why didn't I think about that? So, yeah. Well, on that positive note, that is all the time we have with Rob Zaleski. Again, the book is David Cooper, Beyond the Badge, Reflections of an Ex-Cop from the Good People at Little Creek Press. George Dreckman will be your host next week with his guest, Mary Louise Roberts, and talk about her book, Sheet Misery Soldiers in Battle in World War II. I'll be back the fourth week of September with my guest, Anne winkler Mori for a conversation about her book, Allegiance to Wind and Water, about the bicycle journey she and her husband took around the perimeter of the United States. Yes, you heard that right. I hope you can join us. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, Community Radio.